How are you doing? Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford. Are you well? Have you had a good weekend? If you're a if you're stateside, have you got a sore head today? Never mind, you're off today, aren't you? You've got a holiday today on account of 4th of July being yesterday. Welcome to the programme. I've got two very interesting guests, as usual. Tweet the programme between now and 7 o'clock. It's BBG Richie. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. Ah, murder of Bacardi and Coke right about now. Be no murder done around here, I don't mind telling you. Yeah, it's five o'clock though, and when it's five o'clock, it's five o'clock. You fancy a beer, don't you? Let's do the programme, we'll have a beer later on, maybe. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now... Here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, it is only myself. Now, I'll be joined in the second hour of the programme by John O'Looney. John runs a funeral home in Milton Keynes. He is very highly regarded there. I don't mind telling you. And he's been talking on social media about his own experience of the last 12 to 15 months. And he believes that the death figures have been grossly inflated during that time. Remember, we're talking about a funeral director here. He believes that extraordinary pressure has been brought to bear on people to label deaths as coronavirus deaths, even when there is no evidence that those deaths were in fact due to coronavirus. He's got a lot to say, has John, and he'll be live with me in the second hour of the programme. I wouldn't miss that if I were you. Before that, before that, I'll be joined by Clive Menzies. Now, Clive is a very interesting guy. He's held senior management positions in the financial services and technology sectors. He's currently in a bit of, um, well, in a bit of legal soup with his council in Enfield because Clive is withholding some council tax there, again, because of, I suppose, his way of protesting against, against the lockdown, and more besides. We'll get into that with Clive Menzies this hour, withholding council tax and going to court to deal with that. Technology, financial services management guy. And very interesting, Clive, as well. I've given you the Twitter thing. You can also get to me through the website if you have a comment to make and you don't do Twitter. You can do so by tweet, excuse me, by messaging me, contacting me through richieallen.co.uk. That is my website. I am right, aren't I? You do have a holiday today if you're in the United States. Pretty sure you do. Anyway, welcome. Boris Johnson is on his feet right now at Downing Street at a press conference there. It's expected he will confirm that the majority of the remaining COVID restrictions in England can indeed be lifted from the 19th of July. That means face masks will become voluntary and the one metre plus social distancing thing will end. You also will not need to use your QR code or use your smartphone to sign in at restaurants. Johnson is expected to say that people must learn to live with coronavirus and exercise their own judgment, okay? Okay, not everybody is happy about this though. And by everybody, I mean the scientists. They want lockdowns to continue until Halley's Comet whizzes past again or something like that. It was all fun and games on television today, including ITV and its Good Morning programme. Richard Madeley, the inspiration 
nomination, by the way, for Alan Partridge. He had Susan Mickey on. That's her. That's her. Susan Mickey. Susan Mickey is a behavioural psychologist. She's also a communist. She was um, on Good Morning Britain with a talking head called Dominique Samuels. Is that her name? Dominique Samuels, I think it is. Now, Mickey, as I said, is a communist. She's not a scientist. She's a behavioural psychologist. But she's on the SAGE Committee, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. They're telling the government what to do about COVID. She doesn't want lockdowns to end or restrictions to end either. So um, is Johnson right to leave it to people to manage their own risk regarding masks? Susan Mickey. Well, if we look at um, the evidence as to what's happened over the last 15 months of this pandemic, what we've seen is that people will um, take precautions uh, where they see there's a serious threat to their health or the health of other people um, when they think what they do will make a difference. So from that point of view, I think people, many people will continue, given we're in a very critical situation at the moment with um, up to 30,000 new cases a day, exponentially rising, a population that's partially vaccinated, which has three real problems. One is it means that with high transmission like that, we'll have more variants, and that means more chance of a variant that would undermine our vaccine programme. The second is we have an estimated 2 million people already living with long COVID. Long COVID. COVID. <laughs> which can debilitate people for weeks. Let's just never open up. Months, even up to a year. This woman is mad. And thirdly, although hospitalisation is still low... Jump in any time you want, Richard. ...low, it's rising. And um, further lifting restrictions will mean that that rises even more in a situation where NHS staff are exhausted and we've got a huge backlog waiting list of urgent... Procedures and it needs to be done. Yes, because of nutcases like you, Susan. Susan, you lunatic. Nutcases like you are the reason there is a list from John O'Groats to Land's End of people who need urgent surgery and treatment. Because loonies like you said back in March last year that we needed to suspend all other medical treatments over over a mild respiratory infection. Eventually, Richard Madeley jumps in. The logical extension of everything you just said would be that you think that we shouldn't lift restrictions at all on the 19th, that we should carry on exactly as we are. Is, am I right? Is that what you're suggesting? He's not sick, is he? Well, lifting restrictions will increase transmission. And... Well, let's never lift restrictions ever, then. And with all the problems that I've just talked about, it doesn't seem to me the best time to do that. All right, so In you're fact, saying you should stick... You, if you remember right. a few weeks ago, mm. we actually postponed lifting restrictions mm. because the situation was so serious. But the situation's even more serious now than it was then. Listen, there's a point I really have to put to you, and, and you'll be aware of this, because there's been a lot of, um, of commentary about this in the British media about you. Um, and Just get to the point, Richard. She's a commie. And it's, it's to do with your politics. And, and you know what I'm going to ask you. Uh, you've been a member of the Communist Party for about 40 years now. You're, you're still a member. And we know that, that communism is basically statist. We look at communist countries around the world and we see that they are tremendously top-down dominant and control societies. 
that they, that they rule over. And I just wonder, and I'm putting this question on behalf of those who... Ask the question, Richard! ...wonder about your politics. If your politics actually informs your sense of control, it's not just, it's not just the medical argument, but you have a kind of a political bent to want the state to tell people what to do. Eh? Well, Mickey? I've come on your programme as a scientist, as do all people who come onto your programme as scientists. They come on to talk about the evidence, relevant theories, how we approach our scientific disciplines. And you don't ask other scientists about politics. So I'm very happy to speak about science, which is what my job is, um, and to limit it to that. So you're, you're saying that your politics doesn't inform your opinion on this subject? I'm saying that I agree to come on this programme as a scientist, and I'm very happy to talk to you about the issues that you're raising. Mm -hmm. as a mm, he's not getting any change out of Susan. Yeah, she's a communist, and she believes in basically total state control over every aspect of your life. That's why she told Channel 5 News three weeks ago, when asked when should restrictions end, she said something along the lines of, well... No, no, no. How long should they continue for? Well, well, forever, said Susan. <laughs> forever! Because, you know, you know, there's always somebody sick somewhere, right? Susan Mickey speaking to Richard Madeley this morning. That's the level, by the way. Hey, Mickey, that is the level. I've told you before. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Stephen Riker or Reicher, is a professor of social psychology at St. Andrews University. And he's a bit of an arse. He's another one. Speaking to BBC Breakfast this morning, not happy is Stephen Reicher that people might be, well, given personal responsibility over the old mask wearing. It's not enough to say, take responsibility. We've got to support people and give them the resources and the support they need. And my real fear is what the government is saying in it's over to you and you take responsibility, is we're not going to take our own responsibilities to support people seriously. And the final point is this. This is one of those areas where my freedom affects your freedom. My freedom affects your freedom. So by choosing not to wear a mask, I'm affecting your freedom because I might give you the disease. It's just like driving. My freedom... has got nothing to do with driving. ...to drive fast affects your safety. My freedom not to wear a mask affects your safety in terms of not getting COVID. No, 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 no. If you're such a... Not to put too fine a point on it, numpty, that you are concerned about people outdoors or indoors because they're not wearing a mask. Perfectly healthy people now. If you're concerned about people walking around who are perfectly healthy, not wearing a mask, and you are concerned that they might pass something on to you, you're about a step and a half away from Howard Hughes. You're a nutcase. So feel free to lock yourself away in your house, okay, and flush the key to your own house down the toilet if you're that paranoid about the exhalations of, you know, perfectly healthy people. These are lunatics, these people. And in areas like that, we recognise that we do need some level of regulation. They have no, no, we fucking don't need any measures or, or any measure of regulations. No, we don't. Perfectly healthy people, in fact, even people who are not healthy, should be free to go wherever they bloody well want to go. End of story. And let the onus be on you. 
if you're a bit worried. Oh, I don't think I'll go into the supermarket. Well, it's flu season, and well, one or two people will probably be sneezing in there. Well, all right then. You live like that. You goon. You moppet. You live like that. The rest of us will get on with it. Because I'm not scared of somebody who's coughing and fucking sneezing. I don't think that they're a bioweapon. No, I don't. At all. And it's up to me to decide whether or not I want to inhabit the same space as them. It's not up to me to tell them that they should wear a fucking face nappy to protect me. No, it isn't. If I want to be that pathetic to be worried about a few germs, let me do a Howard Hughes on it and let my toenails grow 17 fucking feet long and my hair down to my arse and hide and wear Kleenex boxes on my fucking feet. You know, at some point people are going to have to say to these people... You better leave town now, Reicher, and, and Crazy Mickey and all the rest of you. It's time now for you to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, this is madness, this stuff, isn't it? It's insane. And you have the nodding dogs then like Richard Madeley and Dan Walker and Louise Minchin on, on BBC Breakfast just nodding along sagely, no pun intended. Instead of laughing these people out of town, give me one show where these people have to come on with me. Just one show, please. Let them come on here and let them not be allowed to hang up. I will destroy them. I really will. They'll never go near the media again. Oh God, it's 13 minutes past the hour. Imagine this. These speed limits to curtail my freedom to harm you. And I think it is reasonable to have not lockdown. Nobody's arguing about lockdown. But you are, you liar. Then you had Chand Nagpal, the chair of the British Medical Association, another twat. We certainly don't. We think it doesn't make sense. We don't actually think it's a responsible decision to remove all restrictions. In fact, you know, uh, we know, for example, that many people uh, do rely on going to work by train. Uh, it makes no sense why they should be in harm's way going into a packed uh, underground carriage uh, and actually know that they can become infected by others by being in close proximity. Well, don't get on the fucking train then. Don't get on the tube. Again, like I said about Reuter, if you want to live like this for the rest of your life, if this is how you want to go about... How dare you demand that the world revolves around you? I'm a twat, a cretin, that is scared of people coughing. So I demand that everybody on public transport uh, wear masks just to assuage my irrational fears. No, no. Again, go and hide in your house and bury your keys somewhere where even you can't find them so that you can't leave. It's time now. Enough's enough now with these people, isn't it? Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Anthony Brooks is a professor of genetics. He's also a legend when it comes to data processing, apparently. He was on the Julia Hartley Brewer talk radio programme today, and they were discussing jabbing the kiddies. Okay? He doesn't like the idea of jabbing the kiddies, does Anthony Brooks, the genetics professor. They were talking about the fact that if you believe the polls, that is, 80% of UK parents are seemingly happy to jab the kiddies. I don't believe that, but that's what the opinion polls are saying. Uh, this guy, Anthony Brooks, God bless him, he's not happy. No, I don't think parents should, and I don't think the establishment should be uh, uh, recommending it. So, so the backdrop to this is obviously, and the government have at last thankfully admitted that the vaccines have been very effective and broken the link between infections and death. So given that backdrop, in, in my view, there's about five different things that would have to be true 
in order to make it both morally and medically appropriate to vaccinate kids. And I'll just, I'll just run through this very quickly. Um, first, it would be necessary that kids spread the virus. And we know they don't. People, that generally, they have mild or no symptoms. And people who have mild or no symptoms transmit the virus very, very poorly indeed. Secondly, that the kids would have some serious risk of some risk of serious harm from COVID or long COVID. And that really is not the case. There's been almost no children, healthy young kids die from COVID throughout the whole pandemic. Um, those that the very, very few that have died had many other uh, serious complications that, that made them particularly vulnerable. Thirdly, um, the idea that kids are not already immune. I mean, the, the argument for vaccinating them to add to herd immunity is that they are currently not immune and we need to vaccinate, vaccinate them to give them immunity. But in fact, and this is the government's own data, um, something more than 60% of children, young kids, uh, sorry, young, young adults, so 16 to 24 year olds, um, are antibody positive. And that's based on data that was a month old now. So that's the government's own data. The kids are basically immune to COVID, basically. Well, at least 60% anyway, of the nation's children won't get it. They're immune to it already. This is true. It's their own data. I looked at it myself today. Old now. So that the numbers have been going up a few percent every week. So we can be pretty sure today that two-thirds of young adults are already antibody positive and therefore have immunity. Or Why jab them? A de- and that's the immunity. government's own data, that's those surveys, of, those surveys of antibody. Exactly. Uh, you know, okay. and, and, I mean, she loves a good mumble, Julia. That, that, that alone would suggest that, yeah, they, they don't need to have the same rollout of the vaccine themselves. But, but yeah, what, tell me the but, other reasons. But, but, the other reason is very good. It's because the jabs are dangerous. But, he actually is going to say the jabs are dangerous. But well, no, the other two are, are about short and long-term harms. And, and um, we know that these vaccines are very effective, but they're also very harmful compared to previous um, uh, vaccines. Um, just to be clear, I've had all my vaccinations, so has my have all my children, right? So, so we're not anti-vax. But he's got to put that in, you know, that little preamble. He's got to do that to cover himself for what he's about to say now. But looking at the health, the, the risk data, the harms that these vaccines cause, they are more harmful than traditional vaccines. Oh yeah, they are. Um, and the worst aspect of that is one in fifty thousand or so. Um, people who are vaccinated die as a result of the vaccination. It's more than that. But good on him for having the courage to say it. Anthony Brooks, genetics professor, speaking to Julia Hartley Brewer on her talk radio programme this morning. It's 18 minutes past the hour. John, uh, who runs a very, very well-known funeral home in Milton Keynes will be on the programme in the second hour. Coming up in a few minutes, Clive Menzies from Enfield will be on with me. You don't want to miss either of those guests. You can tweet me or you can reach me through the website which is richieallen.co.uk. Couldn't be any simpler uh, if you want me to read out your comments. I will make time for them today. But it's a Monday and you know what that means. It's time for another game of Stupid Questions! Stupid Questions! Stupid Question. Stupid question. Stupid question. Stupid question. Yeah, I spared no expense. I spared absolutely no expense when having that jingle created. Today's stupid question contestant is Sky News foreign correspondent Alex Crawford. Alex has produced a brilliant report on how the Taliban are on the rampage again in Afghanistan. The Yankees are pulling out. And the Taliban is taking over empty 
military bases. They're swiping lots and lots of guns and tanks. And they're taking over towns and villages. Now, the Taliban is very media savvy these days and granted Sky News and Alex Crawford special access. She's been following them, you see. So they all went along to a little village just southwest of Kabul. Now, the villagers are surrounded by armed-to-the-teeth Taliban fighters. Alex, you have one question and one question only for the villagers. Off you go. Do you all welcome the Taliban being here? Stupid question! Stupid question! What was that question again? They're surrounded by the invading Taliban army with all their guns and all their head-chopping knives. Do you all welcome the Taliban being here? Let's ask the panel. Returning again this week is a guy from Star Trek, Dutch football coach Louis van Gaal and Donald Trump. Lads... What do you think about that question? What do you think? That's a stupid question. It's a stupid question, I think. It's a stupid question. What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. But I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions. Yeah. It's a stupid question. It's a stupid question. we're, We're all agreed it's a stupid question. Let's hear the stupid question, but this time with the answer. Do you all welcome the Taliban being here? Tell me why. Uh, Because they're a bunch of head-chopping nutters, Alex, that's why. They're a bunch of head-chopping nutters. Stupid question! Stupid question! Stupid question! Stupid question will return next week at the same time, will it? It's 21 minutes past five. It's time for some music. Get rid of that quickly. And then I'll be joined by Clive Menzies and we'll be a bit more serious and a little bit more professional. Here's Nick Cave then in the Bad Seeds. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Some of you will know this as the theme tune from Peaky Blinders. Yeah. And that brilliant Irish actor, Killian Murphy. Red right hand from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Great TV series is Peaky Blinders, by the way. If you haven't checked out Peaky Blinders, do check it out. Really sad earlier this year to, to, to learn that Helen McCrory passed away. Very big part of the show, Polly. That's right, really, really good actress. Damien Lewis's uh, late wife, I suppose you could say. Check it out, Peaky Blinders, 25 past five. Now, I've um, banged on for years about civil disobedience, haven't I? I've pontificated a little bit, I, I accept that. But it's something that's close to my heart. I've engaged in a bit of it myself over the years. And I've always said that I think, and it's just my opinion, it doesn't mean I'm right. Because you could fill libraries with the things that I don't know, right? We, we know that. But I believe that ultimately large, large, very large numbers of people are going to have to disengage and turn their backs on the system and not comply with it if we're ever to get anywhere. All right. Now, let's um, meet my guest this hour. He reached out to me uh, a week or so ago. He's in a bit of legal soup with his local council for non-payment of council tax. And he reached out to me, did Clive, and he said, Richie, you might want to talk about this uh, because I've talked about it on the programme before. Now, Clive's a very interesting gentleman. He's um, got a lot of experience in the financial services and technology world, holding management positions there. But he's been involved in a lot of projects that you, I think, would be interested in uh, because you listen to this programme, like freecriticalthinking.org and invisibleuniverse.org, where um, a lot of solutions to... I suppose the paradigm, the tyranny that we're witnessing, a lot of solutions 
questions are discussed. So I'm delighted to welcome to the programme uh, Clive Menzies. Clive, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Many thanks, Richie. It's a pleasure to be here. No, the pleasure is all mine. And I hope I pronounced Menzies right, did I? I'm, I'm pretty sure I, 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 I generally get these I'm, things wrong. I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent. It, north of the border, it's Mingus, but I answer to most things. Well, well that's, that's what I was thinking, because I remember when um, Ming Campbell was leading the Liberal Democrats. And I used to see on the screen Sir, what I would have read as Sir Menzies Campbell, but yet they were calling him Ming Campbell. So that's why I should have asked you beforehand, but look, mea culpa. Welcome, Clive. Thanks, mate, for coming on. What's happening then? And, and I should have said in my introduction, you are paying some council tax, but you've withheld some of it because of, um, by way of protest. Tell us about that, Clive, from the get-go. Okay, um, I suppose it really all started, I mean, it started with our research. And we, I think when this COVID thing started rearing its head, I'd, I'd more or less dismiss, dismissed it by sort of the end of February. I thought, well, this this clearly isn't going to catch on because we'd sort of looked at it and it was full of holes, the narratives. Uh, so I, I was somewhat taken aback on the 23rd of March when they implemented the lockdown, as it were. And I, I think I'd come to the conclusion in the preceding days that one was going to have to draw a line in the sand. And if you started complying with masks, social distancing, self-isolation, all of these things that they were trying to impose, then basically you were on the road to tyranny. And coupled with the fact that they were decimating or the effect of what they were doing was going to decimate the economy, the economic system. They were going to kill off huge numbers of businesses, really persecute the self-employed. Anybody who who relied on entrepreneurialism for an income, they were going to be decimated. Uh, and obviously, we were going to be affected because, you know, we run our own business and, and what have you. Um, so I, I, I made the conscious decision to stop paying any insurances except car insurance, to stop paying anything I didn't need to. Um, I also started paying a third of my rent, a third of my council tax, um, although that didn't take effect till really June, which was when I, I really sort of decided what I was going to do. And the reason I decided to pay a third is that if you don't pay anything, then um, it could be interpreted as uh, as being, let, let me say, by paying a reduced amount, it was less provocative, but sufficiently provocative to highlight the issues that I was trying I to I get you. I get you. If, you. if you gave them nothing at all, they could say, this is flat non-payment, this is flat non-compliance. So it makes it easier for them to paint you in a certain way and to come after you. So by paying a third of it, um, you're drawing attention to why you're only paying a third of it. I like it. I like that approach. And did you communicate to them, Clive, why you were taking this approach and only paying a third? Um, yeah, it took me a bit of time to decide exactly how I was going to approach it. And of course, information was coming to light that reinforced the case. And and the rationale for paying a third was that they were still coming to collect the rubbish. There were still some services functioning. So in that context, I thought a third was about the right sort of amount. Um, but I, I first tried to deliver a letter to the council offices uh, with my first month's third payment, as it were. Um, but that 
that letter was never received by anybody. The check didn't clear. Uh, and I think by about June, I decided I needed to pay online. And I think I paid a couple of months online. And I sent a letter to whoever was head of collection. I can't remember the name. But on the web post that I, I referred you to when I, I gave you a heads up, actually has a list of all the documents that I sent. And I attempted to communicate with them between June 2020 and April this year, seven times in all. Give us, um, uh, give us a quick, give, give us a quick rundown. Um, I mean, we're, go- we're going to go till six o'clock, so we have a half an hour, which is, which is lots of time. But give us a quick rundown of the sorts of documents you did send them as quick as you can, like for, for our listeners, the, the information you sent them as part to support your reasoning for, for paying one third. Okay, uh, I'll do as best I can. I, I would basically address most of my letters to the leader of the council because I wanted to engage, if you like, the, the political forces in, in dialogue of some sort. Um, and I sent them a letter on the 29th, uh, 20, sometime in June, I think it was the 20th, 29th of June, something like that. I then, my colleagues and I who've been working trying to understand what's going on in the world produced a paper in July 2020 called COVID-19 uh, Structural Violence and, po- and Population Reduction, which actually laid out in granular detail the crimes of the establishment, if you like, against the people. Um, so I, refer, I sent them a letter shortly after that, early August, enclosing that, but outlining in detail what those crimes were. Um, and then I sent them another letter because every now and then I'd get a threatening letter of some sort. So I reiterated the points and sent them back to them, uh, sent the points yet again. Um, and on in April this year, 21st, I think it was, I, I sent another letter to the leader of the council saying, which was probably one of the most, uh, should we say, aggressive letters, because I basically said they were committing crimes and detailed what those crimes were, um, which came under broad headings. And then two weeks later, I got the summons for non-payment of council tax for the year 2021. And so I I put out a detailed response on the 25th of May, which I submitted just before we were due to go to to the hearing. And basically, there were seven statements. There was a statement of facts. And the first statement was that under... The UK government, under expert advice, downgraded COVID as a high consequence in infectious disease on March the 19th, which is right, 2020. But yep. four, which four days later implemented the unlawful um, regulations, as it were. The second point was that the fact that they were promoting experimental vaccines, claiming they are safe, and I sent them a, an image of a poster outside Poundland in Enfield, which basically claim the vaccines were safe, uh, and then referred them to the MHRA data, uh, particularly as shown by a UK column, because if you try to look on the government's website, it's almost impossible to understand what's going on. But if you go to UK column, they've got a very handy Summary, like a summary. Database. Yeah, yeah, it's summarised, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This, this is good stuff. So, But th- you can also... Int- 
you can interrogate the data. And you're sending, uh, you're sending, you're, you're, you're sending, you're sending a list. And, and I've seen quite a bit of this stuff, by the way. And it's very professionally done. You're sending a list of, of seven headings with, with irrefutable facts to the council, basically charging them with complicity in these crimes against the people as your, your, your valid reason, as, as you see it, for not paying the entire council tax bill. And just before you finish off this, because it's important, I want you to, to tell us the rest of the headings, by the way. They, when each time they responded to you, they ignored... The the the, the 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 subject matter. They they ignored the body of text that you had sent to them, the evidence you had sent to them, and just kept coming back with threats about litigation. Is that right, Clive? They didn't engage on any of the points. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I I'm not I'm not totally conversant with the way local authorities work, but basically when I got the summons, it it basically says. The only grounds under which you can contest this is if they've got the band wrong or there's some sort of te- technical reason that you're not liable, as it were. Right. They give the total impression that there are no other grounds for um, refusal to pay. Uh, and my, my instinct is that to hell with what the procedural niceties of the law are, if you can't actually challenge criminal authority directly then you know what state of affairs we in and i i i figured you know whether i win or lose in court is not really the issue um one has to make a stand you have to do what's right and uh that was the basis on which i i continued to operate i think i think it's very admirable and i do mean that and i was thinking about you this morning knowing that you were coming on and i was thinking I'm, I, first of all, for, for people who might be listening to this and they might be looking to, you know, to, to catch me in, in, a, in a compromising situation, I am not advising any man or woman what to do or what not to do. I am not. I'm not telling you to not pay your income tax, to not pay your council. I'm not saying that I endorse that or I do not endorse it. I totally understand why Clive has done it. 100% understand why he has done it. And he's laid out the reasons very well for why he has done it. And, uh, and it's, it's also very interesting. It's very important that you know that they've come back and said, really, well, unless we've put you in the wrong band, meaning that unless we're, you, you think we're charging you too much um, or, or, there, or, or, or some other technical reason, um, you have no recourse uh, but to pay uh, the bloody bill. That's what the councils are saying. We can be doing anything. We can be committing crimes or, or we can be party to crimes and you just have to shut up and pay. That's what they've been telling Clive. I admire what you're doing, Clive. And I've engaged in a bit of this myself in recent years, as I just discussed on the programme about three years ago. Now, they're, they're, they're taking you to court, not just for last year, but for this coming year's council tax bill as well, because you've continued to pay them one third and not the entire um, fee. Um, how do you feel about going to court? Do you see it as an opportunity? Um, well, I think, as I said, you know, knowing back in March last year that um, one was one, it was unavoidable that one was going to come into conflict conflict with authority. Yeah. And I, I made a conscious decision that one had to do the right thing, either irrespective of that. Um, but also, you know, these people are not very clever. 
Um, and I'm not talking about the individuals. I'm talking, if you like, the systemic bureaucracy because everything's compartmentalized, etc. Um, and the date of the hearing, uh, the date of the current situation we're talking about, which is the financial year 2021, was postponed a month. Uh, well, it's been postponed two months now, but it's it's now scheduled for the 29th of July. 2019. Before they'd actually of July, yeah. Yeah. Uh, before they'd actually got to the hearing on the 20, whatever it was, 23rd of June, I can't remember when the hearing was supposed to be, but that was the post that I sent you, I think. Yeah. Um, they'd actually issued the notice for the next financial year, and they've made some howling mistakes in that, not least because I, as you say, I've continued to pay, and yet they're now asking for the full amount as if I paid nothing. So, um, I mean, they may be listening, but I'm not planning to to actually expose that particular card until it, shortly before the next hearing, because uh, that will throw a spanner in the works. Um, so I think you asked the question, am I happy to be going to court with this? So, you know, obviously, I'd rather that the whole thing went away and we were yeah. back to some semblance of normality. But having said that, I think even the, the situation that pertained before this COVID nonsense was becoming intolerable. Uh, and I think, you know, we're now, 2021 is probably crunch point in terms of where we go from here, whether whether we take the road to tyranny or to freedom. And, and I've take, personally taken the view that if I don't stand up for freedom, then I may as well lie back and let them vaccinate me, do whatever they want with me. And I'm not prepared to do that. Yeah, it's, I think it's a- admirable. I really do think it's admirable. I um, We're speaking, by the way, to Clive Mingus. I hope I said that right this time, Clive Mingus. And Clive, as I mentioned a little bit earlier on, has had a lot of experience in financial services and technology. He's a manager. and um, But he's been very interested in uh, critical thinking and has been involved in projects like freecriticalthinking.org. That's, that's, we could spend hours on critical thinking, Clive, and, and why so many of our friends, let's be honest, before we talk about complete strangers, why so many of those we love, all of us now, we've all got people we love that have basically swallowed all of this and are happy to go along with it. At some stage throughout history, in recent years, we divested ourselves, and by we I mean nation states divested ourselves of our critical thinking faculties, did we? We certainly did. Well, I, I mean, there's a long history to this, and I don't want to sort of take take us down a, a sort of another uh, big area of exploration, but essentially the education system was designed to ensure that people didn't understand the way the world works. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, Do you want that. to cover the other points that I raised in my notice? To oh, the absolutely. Point? Coming back to them, the, 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 the seven points, yeah, that you, um, th- that you laid out when you, when, when you said to the council, These, this is my reasoning. Go ahead, Clive. Okay. All right. Well, the first two, we, we mentioned the fact that they downgraded it. Uh, as a high consequence infectious disease and as i heard you discussing with uh, jackie um, jackie devoy yeah um the, the most likely reason is that if it was a high consequence invest uh, um infectious disease they would have to do post-mortems and obviously everyone would know that nobody had died from covid but that 
well, that's a whole other debate as well. Yeah. Um, and they've also been promoting experimental drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals as safe or vaccines. Uh, and there's another point to that that we might come on to later. Uh, the third point was the fact that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which they talk about, has never been isolated. Uh, and there's ample evidence to substantiate that claim. And also what I've learned over the last year or so is that there is no evidence, real world evidence that substantiates the theory, germ theory. Uh, Pasteur, who was a charlatan, Louis Pasteur was a charlatan, nor virology. Uh, I think it was Tom Cowan said that uh, virologists are experts on unicorns or analogous to experts yeah, on yeah, unicorns. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the fourth point was the fact that the council has been instrumental in destroying livelihoods and businesses across the borough under a false premise, the false premise being the pandemic, uh, as well as atomizing families and communities to their great detriment. Uh, and what I said was residents have been physically severed from family, friends, work colleagues who are an essential medical and uh, mental and physical support network for most people. Because um, I, I really believe that a lot of detrimental harm, health, psychological and physical harm has been done by what, what's happened over the last 15 months. No doubt. Um, under, the f under five, um, in London, I'm not sure what it's like in Manchester. I know, I know there are other towns and cities that have been similarly affected, but in London particular, particularly, they've rolled out these low traffic neighbourhoods with real aggression, uh, which has created mayhem for businesses. It's created untold pollution. You've got kids walking to and from school with traffic idling for hours outside. Uh, I mean, it really is horrendous what they've done. And they've also divided communities because obviously those who've got the, the low traffic streets are feeling very happy because they're Property Less prices pollution. have gone up yeah, and their yeah. kids can play football in the streets and what have you. So not only have they, have they created the pollution and the sort of commercial problem of people not being able to go about their daily lives, they've actually divided communities. And it's quite likely that some of them have been, um, shall we say, indulging in cronyism or at least they're opening up themselves to accusations of crony cronyism and corruption. Uh, um, there have been various reports of emergency services not being able to access fires or scenes of crimes or medical emergencies. So, so generally they've done a lot of harm under the LTNs alone. Um, an interesting snippet I came across was a video from a I, I still don't know his name, a Brummie gentleman who'd been hit with one of these coronavirus fines. And he noticed that the issuing authority was something called ACRO, which is the APCO Criminal Records Office. But the actual company issuing these, these fines appears to be beneficially owned by the Chief Police Officers Staff Association. And I explored the accounts and I submitted these to the council as well. Uh, and all you can glean from the accounts is all of the money for this company was transferred in from the staff association back in 2016. And since then, there are only sort of what they call abbreviated accounts. And last year, there's over a million pounds of debtors and creditors. There's no indication of how much income or 
expenditure is flowing through the company and there's no indication of where that money comes from. And if it comes from fines, then the question to be asked is where does the money go? Which merely adds to the, if you like, suspicion that everything seems to be criminally corrupt and well, what involved about, in what about the um, What about the conflict of interest there? You said ACRO is run by by who you said again remind us chief of police officers staff association limited now what the hell is that um, chief of so police officer staff association well, limited what is that well this is something i i picked up a few months ago you know critical the critical thinking or co-creative learning network that i'm a part of puts me in a very privileged and um yeah, a privileged position where people send me stuff. And this was one of the things that came out of the community. And basically, I did an article on it on outsight.org and, and said, you know, I haven't got time to go into this in great depth. But if anybody else does, this certainly looks worth investigating. As yet, I've not had anyone pick it up, not least because one of the people involved in alerting me to it went, then looked at where the um, where all the technology contracts are going for the police force and uh, I think basically got frightened off by the by the idea that you know he may be targeted if he was seen to be sticking his nose in too deeply. No because it sounds like ACRO it sounds like it's basically being run by the police or at least some associated group and and, and that's a massive conflict of interest if the company responsible for ultimately giving coronavirus fines and collecting them is connected to the police itself well I mean we've got to we've got to dig a bit more into that just a couple of things you mentioned Clive Um, as far as the virus not being isolated I don't believe that's been established this is my personal opinion because I've had experts on this programme who do believe it's been isolated and listen I'm not going to quote fullfact.org now, don't get me wrong but a couple of these fact finding groups they have linked to various academics who claim to have isolated it so I don't believe that it's established one way or another whether SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated I'm not saying you're wrong now but but I want to put that out there because I'm not sure as for Louis Pasteur well that's another argument Um, again there there would be a lot of people who would disagree with your characterization of of Pasteur But, but, but but, but essentially what you said to the council in your own, not so much in your own defence, but in your own offence, I suppose, to say, listen, this is the reason why I've paid one third and one third only of the council tax bill. I think it's pretty sound. I think most of what you've told them is irrefutable and it's very serious. But the problem we have here is there are two problems, Clive, that you have. Support. Now, by the way, go to outersight.org, right? Outersight, not out of, outersight.org. Read the blog there and Clive's articles. A lot of evidence on there. It's very important. Check it out. I think you're a very sound guy. I think you're a very smart guy as well. But you need support, don't you? You need whole communities to decide that, look, one way or another, we're going to disengage with the local authority or the government. You, you, you need a lot of support there. That's how I feel about this. I I thought that a few years ago when I had my own run-ins with my local council, which was Manchester Council at the time I'm in Salford now, and I thought really I needed a lot of people in my community to say, right, we're with Richie, uh, or in your case, we're with Clive. Am I right in saying that, Clive? 
Well, partially, yes. I mean, obviously, a lot of the reason that I'm doing this and publicizing what I'm doing is to encourage people who may, th may think that they want to do this to provide them with the tools, essentially, to do it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the first, the first decision one has to make is how do, I, how do I respond personally to what's going on? And that, that's what drives me. In terms yeah. of support, through the critical thinking and the other projects that I've been involved in, I have huge support from some amazing people that I've met over the last 10 years that I've been doing this work. Yeah. So whether people actually come and stand alongside me doesn't really, doesn't really feature in my thinking. It's much more about that feeling of support I have from the community that I've, I've been engaged with over the last few years. Um, but yes, I mean, in an ideal world, the way, as I said, I think 2021 is crunch year. And if people, one could protest, you could, you know, writing to your MP, all of these people are bank carriers for the agenda that's unfolding. And there is never going to be any let up from tyranny by protesting, trying to go through the political channels or whatever. The only way this yeah. is going to stop is if we refuse to comply. And that's something yeah. that we've been encouraging for, well, Critical Thinking produced a paper in December 2018 when the Yellow Vest protests were going on. And we laid out some ideas. And the early ideas were about creating alternative food systems, alternative media, and all the rest of it. But in there, we mentioned rent strikes, debt strikes, and yeah. tax strikes. Now, at the time that we wrote that, I don't think we envisaged the time was right to do that. Yeah. But I would say that the time is now. That if we don't, if we don't actually pull up um, corrupt authority now by by flatly refusing, because the whole system runs on money. Without money, it cannot function. Uh, and what I've done subsequent to contacting you is actually um, started my campaign against the fraudulent banking system. But we won't go into that. Uh, and basically, I'm looking to challenge corrupt authority at the point of delivery. So through my local doctor's surgery, through my local council, through my bank, uh, and I haven't, haven't identified any more. I've got quite enough to be going on. Plenty to go on with. Three, that, that, can, I, can I just come back to something important? Yeah. I have no doubt that you've got plenty of support through the Critical Thinking Organisation and through, and, and, uh, through Outersight.org. No doubt in my mind. Like I said, I've read your blog. You're a very good writer. You're very well-spoken. You're a professional man. You're bright, and I. There's very little I could disagree with you. On you mentioned the, the gilets jaunes again, Clive. The problem we have is these people come out in great numbers, and it's like they come out in great numbers in London. And I genuinely applaud that. But it, something else needs to happen. Then people need to go back to their own communities and say, "Well, no, we, we've we've got to do something now." And what you're doing, and you know, it sounds so personal for you. And I, again, I, I applaud that. I, I admire you for it. But you know, what they did affected your business, the businesses of your friends. It affects everybody's health, our mental health. It's tyranny with a capital T. And you've said, no, I've got a responsibility as an individual to stand up to that. And that is fantastic. It needs to be supported. It has to be ultimately supported. Will there be a line in the sand? Will something happen whereby people will say, 
where, where the wool will be pulled away from their from from their eyes, and they will see it, and 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 then maybe support people like yourself. If I'm living next door to you, Clive, I'm supporting you. I'm not supporting you by standing alongside you at court. I'm supporting you by joining you in your uh, uh, campaign against the council. But we just need more people to do it. Right. You, you know, that's that, that, ultimately that's... I was talking to people in, in Manchester four or five well, years ago when I had my issue with the council. And people didn't want to know. Oh, yeah, you're right, Richie. Yeah, yeah, and all that. But, but ultimately, they're not, they're, they're not saying, well, I'll do... I'll, I'll, I'll come alongside you, Richie. I'll, I'll, I'll refuse to comply. In, in support of you. And I think that we, we, we ultimately need to see more of that going forward, I think. And I think, like you said, very quickly, Clive. Well, I, I, th- I think it's a... Everybody has to make their own choice and everybody has their own circumstances. And, and what I'm doing in the various areas that I'm doing, not everybody can do for various reasons. We all have a particular set of circumstances to deal with. but I, And I think it's also a question of where people are on their journey of <clears throat> discovery, as it were, as to wh- where the world is going. And there comes a point where the risk-reward ratio tips in favour of outright refusal to comply. Because what I envisage from all the work that we've done, the trajectory is very clear as to where we're going. We're going to massive population reduction. We're going to a dramatic curtailment of our freedom, freedom to travel, freedom to associate, all of the things that human beings thrive on. Um, And when you recognise that, then to me, there is no choice. You have to refuse to comply because compliance is basically acceptance of of everything that follows, including genocide. You're not saying, Uh, though, it's interesting. Sorry, Clive, it's interesting. You're not saying, it's interesting. I, you, you're, you haven't gone as far, thankfully, as to say that if you're not with us, you're with them. That, but that continuing to comply means that you've taken a side and that you're on the side of the tyrants. You're not saying that. At least I don't hear that. Well, well you mentioned you mentioned family and friends, and yeah. you know, obviously, obviously, there are people I love very dearly who are going along with the program. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen this report that came out of the States that shows that four out of five women inoculated or jabbed within 20 weeks of pregnancy have miscarried. And my heart breaks for those friends, relatives, and even people I see in the street. Um, I saw a young girl in the tube the other day who obviously had had a vaccination. She had a plaster on her arm and she kept shaking her arm. And I'd, I'd just seen this report and my... My instinct was to tell her, you know, this is crazy. Um, but, you know, what what good would that do? That would just upset her. So everybody has to make their own decision. And to say, you know, just because you're not with me or against me, I think is a whole world is driven by binary it's thinking. Absolutely. It's either black or white. Whereas life is infinitely more subtle and ambiguous than that. Counterproductive to take that approach. Clive, just before we... Uh... Be, be, before we run out of time, I've already mentioned the uh, outersite.org 
site where people can check out the blog there. I mentioned freecriticalthinking.org as well. Um, this will have stirred up a lot in people, what we've been discussing. Where else would you recommend that they go to, to, to find out more about this and to get involved in it and maybe pick up some ideas that they can you know, use in their own neighbourhoods, in their own communities? Well, most of the material um, relating to my fight with the council is on outsight.org, and uh, I don't see the point in sending people elsewhere. Uh, I've also recently, uh, under the heading, the heading that I, I've put this out is uh, tax refuseniks. I've also just done an article on debt refuseniks, which is about with Lloyds Bank. Um, and there are various other things that we've been doing. I mean, essentially, you know, the, the material we put out, it's not mine. You know, this is not me on my own. This, the work of critical thinking and even the work on our site is the accumulation of many people's work, not just those contemporary, but, you know, yeah. historically as well. Um, and it's all there for people to use because I, on a positive note, I feel the world is shifting the ground is shifting, the centralised structure is beginning to crumble, uh, and that recognition empowers people. Uh, and when you realise that, you will know that we are not powerless, because once you start withholding money from the system, it will collapse. Um, so that's all I, I would encourage people to, to learn and work with their community, work with their family and, 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 you know, create alternatives to this monolithic, tyrannical structure that they're trying to impose on us. Good luck with um, the hearing, Clive. We'll obviously be keeping in touch. You and I will we'll follow it closely. And uh, just to mention the website again, outersight.org. It's been um, educational, Clive. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Richie. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's been mine. Thanks very much. That's Clive Mingus, uh, Outersight.org. Clive is a very experienced uh, manager in the financial services and technology, and he's been involved with free critical thinking associations and groups for some years now. And uh, he decided in uh, March of last year basically to say to his local authority, I'm going to withhold the lion's share or two thirds of council tax because you, the local authority, are complicit in basically inflicting tyranny on, on people, in ruining their businesses, uh, destroying their health and, and everything else. He explained it brilliantly there. Clive Mingus on the Richie Allen Show. It's exactly 30 seconds past six o'clock. It is Monday's programme. It is Monday's programme. It is the 5th of July, 2021. Lots more to come on this particular programme. I know you will not want to miss my next guest because he is a funeral home director and he is based in Milton Keynes and he's got some very interesting things to say about what's been going on in the last 15 months, believe it or not. The views and opinions expressed on The Richie Allen Show are those of the guests and the guests alone. They do not necessarily reflect the position of the host or other contributors. Alrighty, coming up next then, uh, we're off to Milton Keynes. As I said, you don't want to miss this. Keep the tweets coming in, BBG Richie on Twitter. And contact me through the website, richieallen.co.uk. Here's Bowie. That's uh, Bowie and Changes. My great friend Jean Ann Crowley makes a good point. She says that non-scientists don't understand this isolation thing. Um, the disease, the, the SARS-CoV-2 might not 
might, sorry, might have been isolated, but not purified. And that's a point that one scientist was making, uh, trying to explain this to people. Isolated maybe, but not purified. And we need to kind of, I suppose, familiarise ourselves with what that means. Uh, hi to my uh, great pal Spiro Skouras, the terrific journalist. I mention him often because I'd like you to check him out. Go to uh, Spiro, uh, go to activistpost.com. You'll find him on YouTube as well. And he got in touch with me earlier today to tell me that in Tajikistan, there are plans there to mandate the vaccine. And that's one country, Tajikistan. I think that's the one, Spiro. I've lost the email momentarily, but that's important. It's also important that Boris, to know that Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, has today indicated that from July 19th, masks won't be mandated anywhere. It'll be up to people to take personal responsibility. Now, I've learned in the last few minutes that at the Downing Street press conference, which began at five o'clock, England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and the government's Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Vallance, both of them said that they would continue wearing masks in indoor crowded places. Now, the Mirror newspaper reported today at three o'clock on its website, I believe, that Ryanair and EasyJet, two very well-known carriers, both of those airlines plan to insist that passengers continue to wear masks, even though the government will be dropping the mandate. You see, the private sector, you see, haven't we been saying that? People like Hayden Hewitt, my pal, and laterally my good self when I realised that he was right. I knew he was right anyway, you know. It's uh, not going away. This is six minutes past six o'clock. The Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, here in the northwest of the UK. Let's welcome my next guest to the programme. And I want to give a big shout out to Mark Boyarski, my great friend Mark, will be on the programme with me uh, tomorrow. And he said, Richie, you need to get in touch with John. Mark said to me, John is a very respected funeral home director in Milton Keynes. And he's been speaking out about death rates and how death numbers around COVID have been inflated. John, actually, the funeral director, actually put a lengthy post out online and it ended up on Telegram and it's very well written. It's very passionate. I'll read you just a little bit about, a little bit from it and then we'll say hello to John. John says, I had a, in the, he's a funeral home director, remember, I had a government sponsored pandemic guy calling me every Monday. He would ask me two questions. How many deceased have I collected that week? Where had they come from? And how many of them were coronavirus? And this was in order to collect coronavirus death numbers. I explained to the government guy that I had collected people from care homes who were not coronavirus deaths, but they had passed due to old age. He then began steering me, saying, but wasn't there coronavirus in that care home or hospital? This was deliberate inflating of coronavirus numbers, despite me insisting that those people had not died of coronavirus. After some months, he finally admitted to me he did not know why he was doing the job, as everyone was saying the same thing. There were no coronavirus deaths. Amazing. He went on to say, I will tell you as a funeral director, I have seen massive efforts made to deliberately inflate coronavirus death numbers. Cancer patients and stroke victims and even one guy that was run over all ended up with coronavirus on their death certificates. Why? 
I've also spoken to numerous families who were extremely angry and upset that coronavirus was on the death certificate. They knew their loved ones did not die from coronavirus. So let's welcome to the programme then, live from Milton Keynes, the director of the Milton Keynes Family Funeral Services. Delighted to welcome to the programme uh, John O'Looney. John, thanks for taking the call. How are you? Um, I'm really, really well. Thank you very much for, for having me on the show. I'm delighted to have you on the show. And I know that your family, your, 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 your family name goes all the way back to Munster in Ireland, and I'm a Munster man myself. You're of the Olunig, uh, you're of the Olunig tribes, John. So you're all right by uh, me. You're all well, right. It's my, my great-grandfather came over on a coal boat to London when he was about 12. Um, that's as much as I know, to be honest. He came over on a coal boat when he was 12, your great-granddad, to London. Yeah, yes. definitely Munster. Olunig is a, is, a, is a great Munster name. I love names. John, I looked you up today. And I'm going to say this straight away. You, your funeral home has outstanding Google reviews, but not only that. A number of industry websites have declared your funeral home to be one of the best in the top three in the region, in, in the region of Milton Keynes. You're very highly thought of. And I'm making that point because you've got nothing to gain by speaking out in the way that you have. So what prompted you to speak out and to write those um, posts? Do you know, um, I've been a funeral director for 15 years now and uh, I spent 10 years working for one of the major industry players. Um, what changed for me, the first five years was good. The second year, the second five years, um, the bank collapsed. Um, and I, I don't need to name them to know who that big player is, but it ruined it because the money men came in and people became funeral numbers rather than mums, dads, granddads. So I set up on my own um, and the rest is history, really. I kind of based my template on treating people as I would wish to be treated. Um, this means, uh, obviously, I don't earn anything like the kind of money that others perhaps earn doing what I do. But I like to think that I'm making a real difference and I love what I do. Like I said, the reviews are stellar. They are stellar. But also the, the, the websites, the, I suppose the industry watchdogs, they think you're um, terrific and, and that's important to, to, to mention. So tell me about this inflating the death numbers. Go back to when, <clears throat> when you began to think that this was going on. Well, to be honest with you, I first became aware uh, of um, the, this COVID um, uh, event back in around November stroke December of 2019, um, a family came to me who lost a loved one in the neighbouring borough of Northampton. Um, and usually in Northampton General Hospital, they'll do viewings and they uh, are requested to see their loved one at the hospital. And we're told that this would be, uh, wouldn't be able to do that. And they relayed that to me and I said, look, don't worry, I'll drop what I'm doing and I'll go and pick your loved one up so that you can spend some time here at the funeral home. And when I got to the hospital, naturally, I, I asked why they weren't doing any viewings. And then they opened the door and showed me the chapel uh, of rest stroke viewing room that they have at the, the hospital in Northampton. And it had like, um, I'd never seen one before that time. And it was like an inflatable mortuary kind of isolation tent. And uh, I was kind of told in no uncertain terms that something terrible was coming. Um, and so... Inevitably, um, as you do, I warned my family and kind of told close friends and a few of them laughed and dismissed it and, and kind of said, you know, put your tin foil hat on. Uh, and um, 
the rest is history really now i took a phone call early in 2020 from a guy who introduced himself as um, a government-sponsored pandemic guy um, and i'm not going to name him because you know other funeral directors will have no doubt had the same conversations as well but i got to know him very well and he would as i said in uh, in my open letter um he kind of would ask me where i'd collected people from now if i picked people up that were COVID, i hasten to add that i would have said that um and there were times when i did indeed pick covid labeled deceased up from hospitals and i relate that to him but as the death rate eased off i kind of said to him look um these people are not COVID, uh, they're just, you know, elderly people that have come from a care home that haven't been tested. And he would kind of say to me, but wasn't there COVID in that care home? Wasn't there COVID on that hospital wing? You know, deliberately steering me. And I kind of, that didn't kind of sit right with me, but it wasn't just that. You know, I spoke to a number of families that were coming in, um, increasingly angry. And as you've rightly said, you know, COVID um, was put on death certificates that the family insisted they did not. This was terminal cancer patients that have perhaps gone to hospital to, to, uh, for end-of-life care, as is often the case if there isn't a space in, in a local hospice. Uh, and then they're deemed to have tested positive. So that's what's been put on the death certificate. Um, you know, and I kind of, as time's gone on, I've, I've felt more and more that, that, that I'm uncomfortable about the whole situation. For example, in 2020, and... and Please remember, I can only speak from my personal experience yeah. and the feedback I kind of get from funeral directors around me. The death rate didn't seem any interest, any increase at all on on the normal year. In fact, you had I a spike though. You had a spike in February, March of 2020, did you? Would you? Would that uh, no, have been 20, a... 2021. That was this year. So, in fact, in, in November, December of last year, it was so quiet. I mean, don't get me wrong, we were doing funerals. Yeah. But it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, and obviously, you know, if you treat people the way you want to be treated, there's nothing more certain than death. People would tell other people and they come back to you. So as a business, my business has steadily increased, you know. Yeah. So um, I just didn't believe the rhetoric, the panic. that the. And I'd hasten to add, very early on in the process, I looked after a young girl, which again, I'm, without going into details about this young girl, she passed away due to um, natural causes and the family wanted to spend time with their little girl. Now, I'm a dad myself. Uh, other funeral directors were taking coffins and body bags to the hospital and putting people straight in them uh, and sealing, no viewing, no visiting, no washing, no dressing. Maybe if they were lucky, they were laying the clothes on top. And they were doing that because of COVID. Uh, and I feel there's, it's kind of been a great excuse for a lot of people to do the bare minimum. Now, for me personally, I couldn't bring myself to do that. You know, how can I tell someone's mum and dad they can't see their little girl? Yeah, Jesus. You know, I can't, I, can, yeah, I can't do that. So I embalmed her and washed her and dressed her. And I'd hasten to add, you know, for a long time, I couldn't get any masks because there were none for sale anywhere. Everybody had panic bought them. And I was, I, I kind of presented this girl to the family and, and, and went through the usual process. And I kind of sat back and I thought, well, if I can do that for them, do you know what? I can do that for everyone. And I've washed and dressed dozens and dozens and dozens of alleged COVID victims. 
Um, and you're not supposed to do that. You're, you're supposed to put those people into caskets and seal them immediately to, you know, no matter what the family thinks, that's what you're supposed to do. But you're doing the humane thing. Is that right, John? You're doing the decent thing. Uh, in honesty, uh, again, it goes back to treating people as you want to be yeah. treated, doesn't it? And, and there's a, a line somewhere in the sand, isn't it, between common sense and compassion. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I wasn't careful as I possibly could. And there are various um, techniques to try and minimise the risk that, that you learn as an undertaker, packing airways, that kind of thing. Um, and I followed that as, as good as I could. But, you know, I'm 53 years old. Uh, I'm asthmatic. It's a miracle I'm alive, isn't it? You know. Well, yeah, yeah. When when you think of about the, the the dangers that we were told, you know, of of being around people who might have have COVID, we learned last year about the dangers of even being around uh, deceased people who had COVID. Hence, the decision not to do autopsies. Now, can I take you back to the very beginning? Because we we are yeah. going to we are going to talk about this. February just gone because that's important. But but when you think yeah. back to February, March 2020 or even April 2020, were yeah. you much busier than you would have been in previous years? Taking into account that you're a popular um, funeral director, if you leave that to one side, were you busy? Was it unnaturally or unusually busy? Do you know what? I'm sitting in my office at the moment and I have a wall planner every year. Let me just turn around and have a look at last year's wall planner because yeah. it's underneath this No, no busier than usual. No uh, to be honest with you, I didn't feel that 2020 was an exceptional year for death rate. And, and that simply added fuel to my fire, personally, my fire of doubt, if you like. Um, yeah, I didn't really feel there was a tremendous spike. You've got to remember that um, doing the job that I do, it's very seasonal anyway. So in the winter, when, when seasonal flu um, appears, if you're frail, uh, you perhaps have COPD, heart failure, you're, you're very, you know, your body has a certain threshold that it can tolerate. Uh, and if you contract uh, uh, food, for example, then it takes you over that threshold and you pass away. And this is obviously predominantly in the winter, winter months, kind of November to April. And I think most uh, people that are in the trade will listen to that and agree with that. Now, very interestingly, in the 15 years that I've been an undertaker, this is the first year I haven't heard of a single recorded flu, winter flu death. Yeah. Not one. Flu has disappeared, apparently. It's evaporated. It's as though it never existed. That's right. We're, we're listening, by the way, if you've just joined the programme, we've got John O'Leunig. I'm going to give him his proper Irish name, his monster name. It's John O'Leunig. John's a respected funeral um, home director, a funeral director. And uh, he is respected. Look him up. You'll, you'll see how respected he is. And John smelled a rat around the recording of coronavirus deaths uh, last year. And he's been looking into it ever since. And he's You've heard him clearly tell us there in the last couple of minutes that he didn't feel there was any great increase in death numbers last year when when we were told that people were dropping like flies. 
he talked about the inhumane things that were happening to families. You know, when people died, they were sealed into coffins and the surviving family members didn't get to spend time with them. Uh, John described how, you know, he wouldn't go along with that to his absolute credit. But importantly, he told us how funeral home directors like himself were receiving calls from government people, basically, um, who wanted them, basically, to, um, you know, elevate the coronavirus death numbers. John was telling this particular guy, well, no, these people died of old age and that person died of cancer. But they were insisting that the coronavirus numbers were, were, were inflated. This is very important. We will talk about the vaccine because I know that you looked after a senior consultant whose wife sadly passed away and you took care of the arrangements for the senior consultant. And I believe he said something about the jab to you. We'll, we'll talk about that in yeah. a few minutes, maybe. Yeah, obviously. So, obviously, I can't go into details. It's all about the, the person concerns. Um, but uh, I looked after his family. I got very close to him, as I do all of my families. They come in as strangers, and they expect two things. They expect you to rip them off, and they expect you not to care. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't take them very long to see that, actually, I really do care. And when they look at the invoice, I'm far, far cheaper than the majority of other undertakers. And they know they're not being ripped off. And so they tend to open up to me then. And you get, you'd be surprised how quickly you get close to families. And they're very revealing. And um, you, you, as a funeral director, you don't often see death certificates. Um, they're not required for me as a funeral director to see. They're presented to the registry office, which in turn issue a green certificate to us. Uh, and then that green certificate is presented along with the application to the crematorium. And remember the vast amount, uh, the vast majority of funerals today, uh, certainly in, in the UK, are cremations. Probably, I would guess, around 95% of funerals are cremations. So, so um, I was... Why is that, of, John? Uh, is that is that because there's a lack of plots? Is that the problem these days? Um, it's a, a little bit of both. Some of it is cultural. Uh, and slowly the culture shifted um, towards cremations. Certainly it's more expensive to, to, to have a burial because you have to purchase the plot. Um, and it's very expensive in that even though you purchase the plot, you then pay extra for permits to have stones. The stones themselves are expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously for some, um, money is a concern. But, uh, and that then pushes people towards having a cremation. But going back to the, this gentleman that I looked after, I got quite close to him. And I was offered a COVID vaccine um, and declined. And I took the time to message him and said, look, what do you think of this? And he, he replied um, via an encrypted WhatsApp message saying he would call me later this, the, that evening. And I remember at the time thinking, that's odd, you know, because we've been messaging each other about the funeral arrangements constantly because I like to touch base with people. And I always give them my mobile number so that, um, for example, if I go to the hospital and pick up your dad, you'll know the moment that happens because I text you and say, dad's now in my care. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a real important thing. I don't want anyone to ever sit at home well, and wonder well, where well, their loved one is and if I pick them up well, and always well, go promptly. So anyway, I walk in the dog that evening with my wife and the guy called me back via a WhatsApp encrypted call. And he told me under no circumstances that I consider taking any of these injections because in his words, they're very dangerous. And he would much rather take his chances with the vaccine, uh, with, uh, with COVID, than he would the vaccine. He went on into detail telling me about how the government had signed waivers for the pharmaceutical companies. And that as part of that um, process, he was one of those consulted, is my understanding. 
by the government before the, the waivers were signed. Now, we're all entitled to something called informed consent. I wonder how many recipients of these, these injections have been told uh, uh, that waivers have been signed. Yeah. I, I would I would I would guess not many. Now I um I've mentioned several times you're a reputable man um in, in, in your business. And I'm not saying that I do not believe you had that conversation. In fact I do believe you. But I've got to say yeah. this or or I wouldn't be doing my job. If we were in court now, the other side would jump up and they would say, Objection, Your Honor, hearsay hearsay. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. got it we've got to take John's word that the consult but I can't think of any reason you would lie. So the senior, no, the senior uh, NHS consultant says, John, stay away from the bloody jab. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and ultimately, I mean, you'll appreciate my position. I could never betray any of my people's trust by revealing who they are. That's something if they choose to do, they'll step up, I'm sure, and reveal all. But there has been um, a significant number of adverse effects and deaths recorded. I myself have looked after people that have died not long after a jab. Uh, of one description or another and I would say there's enough concern there for us to have open debate um, for example my open letter I know has been seen by many thousands because I've spoke to them I, you know, this weekend I spoke to nurses, doctors um, a professor a senior anaesthetist that all supported me and agreed with me avidly They reached out and to you John once I, they saw the open yeah, letter right it, yeah, yeah. I spoke to my phone I've not stopped I've not stopped. It's a good job that the funeral director, I'm not busy because I've been inundated with support. And, I, I, you know, I just would like to say thank you to everyone. It's really humbling. Um, and, and, you know, I, for a long time, I felt quite alone uh, with a big bell around my neck of this. Uh, and um, I kind of, I feel vindicated now that I'm not alone. Uh, and, you know, if there's that much concern from professionals that are far more um, educated and, and far more affluent in these medical fields than me, why is the silence deafening? Why are we not having open dialogue and discussion? Good it's question. Really now on that, on that, on you would obviously have a professional relationship with other funeral directors. When, yes. when you were observing last year and even this year, the things didn't add up. Would you have had private conversations with other funeral directors? And if so, have they noticed the things you've noticed and are they concerned? Yeah, I've spoke to a couple who obviously are reluctant to, to um, come out into the public domain for obvious reasons, because potentially it could damage their business. Uh, for a number of reasons, you have to remember that um, if you're a funeral director and you've had let me let me um, uh, give you an example. If somebody comes to me and they're bereft, they've lost their father who was 75 and he, he had heart failure and perhaps a little bit of COPD or diabetes and the hospital told him he's died, it's a COVID death, they're going to be convinced that was COVID. Yeah. And, and so I have to tread extremely carefully. Of course, of course you do, uh, yeah. I'm not going to call them a liar. I, I, you know, I'm not going to call them a liar. I'm going to tell them that the, um, I believe the death rate wasn't any more than normal. The only time the death rate shot through the roof was in January, February and March. And that's locally. Can we come back to that in a sec? Can we come back to Well, actually, it's the same issue. Um, because you mentioned a moment ago that you've looked after people who died not long after or sometime after having a jab. 
And yeah. it's fair to say that neither you nor me could ever be certain that the jab was what led to them dying. But you'd be totally understanding of anybody who would want to know, would want to find out. Did anybody, yeah. did any of the surviving family members of someone who died after a jab, did any of them say that they were a bit concerned that their loved one died after a jab? And were they looking to kind of, you know, to, to try and find out what happened? Um, I've spoke to probably half a dozen families who came in the door very angry. Uh, and um, I don't doubt we'll pursue it. Um, I, I mean, as you'll appreciate, their energy was taken up Absolutely. trying to take care of their loved one. And I think initially they come through the door bereft, thinking that I wouldn't wash and dress their loved one and they wouldn't have a chance to see them. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that wasn't the case because I made that time for them as safely as I possibly could. Um, I don't doubt there'll be a plethora of angry families pursuing this. How far they'll get, in honesty, I think we all know the answer to that because the silence has been deafening. Let me just remind the listeners, John, it's the right thing to do. Um, it's exactly, by the way, 29 minutes past six. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford. And we've got John O'Leonig on the line. John's a funeral director in Milton Keynes. And uh, I'm going to say it again because it's important. He's a very highly regarded funeral director. And he's been telling us that all is not right with the coronavirus story. That in his opinion, all is not right with the numbers of, of deaths. We're told 128,000, 130,000 people have died of coronavirus. John says that he's not alone as a funeral director in finding it hard to believe the numbers because he was getting contacted by a government person who was putting pressure on him to go along with, you know, this person died in a care home of uh, coronavirus and this person died of coronavirus in hospital and John knew this wasn't the case. He talked about how he knows for a fact that people who died of cancer and people who died of other long-term illnesses were actually, um, were, were put down as having died of coronavirus. He treated, well, he treated, excuse me, he looked after, he took care of the funeral arrangements of a lady, a God lover, who lost her life. Her husband is a senior NHS consultant. And John says that he was involved when they, when, when they made the decision to, to indemnify the pharmaceutical companies who manufactured the vaccines. John says mm -hmm. the senior consultant told him to stay as far away from the jabs as he could because they are very, very dangerous. John has been telling us in the last few minutes that in recent times, a half a dozen people um, uh, have died and John has looked after them and they died not long after having the jab. And in some cases, the family were very angry because the family believe that the jab was to blame. As I said, John O'Lunig, Milton Keynes, funeral director, is on, is on the line with, with us. Now talk about, John, this February and March when we saw, I suppose, the vaccine rollout or the injection rollout uh, take off. You believe that there were there, there were there were deaths uh, even then, and that the, the death numbers were rising. You did you witness this in your own funeral home? So so um, before Christmas, we were still doing funerals, but it wasn't overly busy. Uh, I broke up for Christmas, came back, and locally it was well advertised. They were vaccinating from the sixth of January, um, and and like I say, that was well advertised. And I kind of told a couple of people closest to me, I wonder if the death rate will soar as that begins. And it did. It went through the roof. I've never seen a death rate like it from the, from the second that I came back to work until about the second, first or second week in April. 
it was horrendous. I've I've never ever seen anything like it. And where it was so busy, I had little time to engage on the usual level. I mean, to give you an idea, I turned away around 15 families, I suppose, and it probably doesn't sound a lot, but um, for me as a small family funeral director, that, you know, I had dozens and dozens of, of phone calls from people. I uh, fathers, I remember one guy, bless him, he was, he lost his daughter um, and she obviously, she, I kind of grasped, she had issues. Um, he was told it was a COVID death and um, he'd rung around funeral directors and nobody would let him view or dress up. Um, and he was crying saying, you know, I just want to see my daughter. I want to be able to say goodbye to her. And I just physically didn't have the room in, in here. Jesus so Christ. I referred him to a colleague um, not too far from here who I felt would would have given him the kind of service that he deserved. And uh, thankfully, that's exactly what happened. Um, because I called him back and said, look, I'll, I'll make room for you. And he said, no, your friend, your friend has, he's going to look after me. He's agreed. So um, it was it was absolutely awful. And it was to the day when they began vaccinating. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I can only tell you what I know as an undertaker serving the local area. And this was my experience to the day. And then as quickly as it went through the roof, it stopped. And I can tell you now, I haven't seen, I haven't had a COVID death in my care for over three months. Over three months. Now, can I ask you this? I I know you said you're not a doctor. And if if the vaccine rollout coincided with a lot of of death, if if the vaccines were in some way responsible for that, and they might have been, I mean, I I talk (laughs) about this all the time with my guests, why then do you think it slowed right down? Because they're giving out these vaccines at the speed of light. Wouldn't it stand yeah. to reason that the death rate would continue to rise? Yeah, 100%. Well, you, you're posing a question to me that I've... I'm I know, I know, this asked. is it, and I'm not trying to trip you up. I'm not trying to trip you up at all. No, no. I'm confused, okay. I'm with you, because I suspect that the jabs are causing harm, John. We see the yellow card reporting system. Yeah. We see the one in America. Think, we know yeah. they're causing harm. So it's a bit strange that it would slow down. And yeah. The only thing that I can think of is if you think logically, if you were um, uh, damaging people with uh, vaccines and you continue to do so from day one and it was non-stop damage and death, it wouldn't be very long before the uptake and public confidence in those and nobody would go and take one. Uh, and interestingly, the, the, the medical guy that I spoke to in depth, uh, about it, he suggested to me that because waivers were signed, there was no, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There was no obligation to cease, you know, they were going to continue testing live in the field. And I think that's been, that's been proven. That, and that would mean, in turn, different batches in different areas. And that would correlate totally with it, you know, because if the death rate started when they began vaccinating and then it just carried on while they were vaccinating, it wouldn't be very long, would it, before everyone would, would wake up and say, yeah. you know what? that's you know let's leave it there shall we um they couldn't they've got to be able to turn it on and off haven't they and i'd be very interested to see uh, when the death rate surged in different areas and if there's kind of a correlation you know with vaccine um because it it did vary a little bit it was staggered from place to place wasn't it the the uh, the beginning of the vaccine it Um, was let me ask you this let me ask you this john on the vaccines um 
this is a fair question, I think. Before any of this started, would you have had your reservations about vaccines in general? Uh, to be honest, I suppose I cast my mind, but I'm not really a mad conspiracy theorist, to be honest with and that's you. That's not but what I'm asking now. I'm, I'm, I'm not asking I mean, that at all. I, I, just, just wondering. Um, the only time I've ever been really ill was after I've taken a flu jab. So I haven't had one for many years, and I've declined them when I've been offered them. Um, so I kind of wouldn't be inclined to want to take it anyway, much more so now, having spoken to the people uh, that I have and seen the things I've seen, and especially this weekend since the post, I've personally spoken to, to broken-hearted families that have been ravaged by taking them. Tell me this, John. So, Tell me, how important is it in the grieving process that a man or a woman gets to spend some time with the deceased, how vital um, is that in the grieving process? Do, do you know what I will say is um, uh, different uh, different things are right for different people. And one thing that I've found, and this is what makes life so interesting, is I've had um, people into a range of funeral with me and they've laughed and joked through that arrangement. It's been done in half hour. I've had people rolling on the floor, crying and screaming in agony and everything in between. You know, everyone has a different need and a different way of grieving. And for some people, it's everything. And for others, the last thing they want to do is, yeah. is see something in their coffin. You know, so I kind of cater to people's needs, ask them what they want, and I will do it. And I'm very careful never to make a promise that I won't keep, you know. Um, so, for example, say if somebody comes to me and says, I'm desperate to see my dad, and I look at the date of death, and he's been passed eight weeks, it's not a promise no, that I'm going to make. I would never to. tell someone... They can't see a loved one, but I could be gently honest with them. And um, by gently, I mean nature's taken its course. I didn't know your dad, but I think you'd want him to remember you at his best. You know? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. That you know, you've important. got, uh, li listening to you, you've got one of the toughest jobs, I think, that, I mean, you know, I, I knew, th there's an undertaker in my family, by the way, amazingly enough, in, in Waterford. Uh, the, the Hennessy uh, family, famous undertakers in Waterford, are cousins of mine. And I know it's incredibly responsible. And you're a very important man. Uh, and and your your wife, of course, who works with you. You, you know, you're, you're dealing with people when they're at their lowest ebb. And I asked you that question because you talked about the gentleman who went to pieces because he couldn't see his child and you helped with that. It, it sounds so yeah. inhumane and so almost evil that a state would try and deny the man. That's why I asked you, because obviously you've given me a really good answer. Not everybody will want to be with um, the deceased, but for those who desperately need to spend that little bit of time, how dare any government say that they can't, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I kind of found that whenever you get something like this, and it isn't something any of us have ever lived through before, um, you're, it's always going to bring out the best and the worst in people, isn't it? And for some people, I don't doubt, COVID has been the perfect excuse to do the bare minimum. And you'll all, all these people sitting there in the workplace, they'll look around that workplace and they'll know who was going to self-isolate before they even made the phone call to say they were self-isolating, you know? And it's no exception with undertakers. Some of them look at it as a great opportunity um, I don't doubt. Um, and others, um, like myself, you know, it, it, I would still endeavour to do whatever I could because my main concern is that family. And it's more of a service to the living than it is those that have passed. So I, I would, um, I've been as careful as I possibly can be. 
I would hasten to add, I haven't been reckless, but compassion is what drives me. Um, not money uh, and not the, 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 the easy way out, you know, because yeah. that, that, that isn't what I'd want if it was my family. Well, look, the sincerity shines out of you. Uh, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be endorsing you, but I'm going to anyway. I do believe you're sincere, John. But I only need to look again at the industry, at, at how you've been graded by your peers and, you know, top three recommended funeral homes in the area, your, your, your Google reviews. You're obviously somebody that cares about people. John, I want to ask you about a couple of things that you said in your open letter. Very important. You said, now, this, there, there, there's no evidence, but you've heard whispers that local health authorities are getting paid by by death certificates. So if they're given coronavirus on the death certificate, there's a clear incentive to do so. You think you've been hearing that. Is that right? Yeah, kind of heard whispers. And again, I've got no evidence because I don't have, I'm not privy to that information. And it's very interesting to see that legislation was passed only uh, a short while ago to make it very much harder to access public information, wasn't it? Um, uh, which I, I find quite compelling that this legislation uh, around GDPR uh, and making it much harder for anyone else to find out um, information um, if they request it. Uh, and so I couldn't confirm it. I'd heard it uh, and it does correlate with my suspicions. So obviously um, I, there's an old saying, isn't there? There's no smoke without fire. And I'd be very interested to see um, and to hear if there were any payments made or any kind of government grant to health authorities for COVID deaths. If you only saw my Twitter singing me jig, the the interest in this is off the, the scale. It, it really is. The couple of questions that they want me to put to you, one of them is a little bit negative, not about you, but about consequences because people are worried about you, you know, that you've gone public, you've written the open letter. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but people yeah. do worry. Um, before that, though, again, we, we have the director of uh, Milton Keynes Family Funeral Services, John O'Lunig. John is on the line, and he wrote this open letter. We've been talking about it, why he's very disturbed about the inflation of coronavirus death numbers, the pressure being brought to bear on people to list uh, coronavirus deaths when, when, in fact, people died of other things. A very senior NHS consultant telling John not to have the jab, that the jabs are dangerous. Um, well, there was a senior doctor on talk radio this morning speaking with Julia Hartley Brewer. He said the jabs are dangerous, in case anybody wants to listen to the mainstream media. Uh, John has spoken to numerous families who are angry and upset that coronavirus was listed on the death cert of their loved one because they know their loved one didn't die of coronavirus. He talked about people coming into the funeral home having passed away not long after they had uh, the jab. And he's talked there about why there are suspicions that local health authorities have a financial incentive to list people as having died of COVID, even though they haven't. Now, there's another thing you said in your open letter, um, and that is um, that you're worried about things you're hearing about the building of, um, is it um, the, the construction of big new crematoriums, is that right? Or, or yeah. something along those lines? Uh, usually, in my experience, um, as I said to you, it's, it's seasonal work, so there's always an excess death and there's excess death capacity in hospitals. And it consists of a number of pandemic bags that are kind of folded away and can be brought out to deal with those extra um, capacity if it's needed. And on the odd occasion, I've seen like a refrigerated lorry, you know, um, uh, appear here and there at various hospitals on occasion. Um, I've seen multiple tenders for large temporary mortuaries. 
um, up and down the country. And I, I kind of wonder why that is, because it's not something I'm used to seeing. Um, I'd hasten to add, I've kind of discussed that with members of staff, and they feel exactly the same way. Uh, for example, Mayan Barmer, he's, he's spent longer than me in the industry, and he said that's not something he's ever seen either. Now, if they're touting these wonder drugs uh, and telling us how wonderful they are and they're all going to save us and everyone should get drabbed and, uh, and how great it is, why would they be tendering for these, these temporary mortuaries up and down the country? Can I just endorse this, by the way? Um, John is right. Uh, local health authorities are um, putting out to tender uh, for bids to, to, to build big temporary, temporary now, massive mortuaries um, from 2021 winter until 2025. Why is the question? And you're telling me that you're in Balmer, a very experienced man, and others are saying this is unheritable. Why would you do that unless you expected, um, well, far more people to die than normally, John? Well, it can only be one of two things, can't it? It'd be interesting to see who uh, secures those contracts and it'd be interesting to see what the relationship is between those contract holders and government. That, uh, I mean, it may be, don't get me wrong, it may be that there isn't the death rate and they're just playing it safe. But at the same time, I'd still like to see who, what, which company are successful in getting these contracts and also why they feel the need to do something they don't usually do on that level, do you know? Yeah, yeah. But you know, we, we, we would be waiting for Father Christmas to come and reveal himself to us in the sky okay. in a sled and admit that he's real before a mainstream media presenter, John, has the courage to ask one of these questions. That, 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 to the, be honest with you, I'm, I'm dreading this one. I'm frightened to death. Really? Yeah, yeah, because I kind of, part of me hopes that it's, it's not real and, and this wonder drug will work. But part of me also suspects that there'll be an extremely large death rate. It will be primarily in recipients. And the people they will point the finger at is those who refuse a vaccine. And whatever name they can come up for an, a, a new variant, then, which yeah. seems to be the trend now, doesn't it? Every other week we're hearing about new variants. New when variant, did you hear yeah. the new variants before? And doctors have come on this programme to tell me that variants uh, basically work down, they don't work up. Variants are always weaker than the original mm. infection. And by the way, John, just in case there's a brand new listener to the programme who thinks that John is off his rocker by suggesting that the jabs will lead to uh, deaths in the winter. Let me, I could list six or seven incredibly well-respected academics and doctors who've been on this programme, real ones now, real academics, who have talked about antibody-dependent uh, enhancements and they've talked about pathogenic priming. They've talked about spike proteins and why these vaccines, which they're not really vaccines, why they will pr prime the immune system in a way that it's, it's possible that the recipient of the jab maybe six or eight months down the road, maybe a year down the road, when they are exposed to a brand new infection, just a regular cold maybe, or another virus, that their immune system will basically work against them in a way that could cause very serious health problems in that person. Now, real doctors are talking about this. And I'm like you, John, I'm wondering if these temporary crematoriums are being set up for 
maybe the fear that lots of people will encounter the winter flu well, or the winter cold and then die? I would, I would hasten to add it's, it's temporary mortuaries. Excuse me, excuse me, temporary mortuaries. mortuaries. You're yeah, right, yeah. temporary mortuaries. So, good, so, to, good to correct um, me, yeah. If you run the scenario through your mind, let's let's say for one moment, um, and God forbid, that I'm right, and this winter, um, primarily recipients, along with the, the usually expected death rate, uh, and it gets out of hand, and it's phenomenal. And God forbid, you know, it's not something I'm wishing, anything but. Imagine the public panic, right? Now, imagine how easy it's going to be to pass legislation emergency legislation like they've already passed to mop up anyone that hasn't been vaccinated and get them vaccinated. Imagine the public support you're going to get when they're dropping like flies and how easy that's going to be. To, to get I people dread, to do. Yeah. I'm, really, I'm really frightened for everyone. I think you're brave, John. Well, and, and I, I really do mean that. I'm not, it's not just a throwaway thing to say. I think you're brave. Do you worry about, you know, yourself because you, you know, you've put your I'm, head above the parapet I'm, now I, i'm a happy-go-lucky guy um i i'm a strong believer in being honest even if people don't like that honesty you can be gently honest but i think sometimes you in your life you ultimately you've got to look in the mirror and i had two paths that i could have taken uh, um i could have said nothing and then just plodded along and, and served people and no one you know you've seen my 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 uh, online presence and well respected and that would have continued yeah. or I see something that I felt might be terrible happening and speak out about it and then I'd be condemned anyway so so you know you kind of I'm caught between the, the, the lift doors if you like either way if I say nothing I'd feel terrible and I'd carry it around like a, a lead bell around my neck and if I say something I'm going to be condemned aren't I by those who choose to follow the narrative what I'm asking for is open dialogue and a, a public inquiry, an independent public inquiry into this before something terrible happens. It's not much to ask, John, is it really? In light of everything did, we found out. The, uh, the number of professionals, I mean, uh, the, uh, as I said to you before, I've spoken to probably a couple of thousand people. My phone is constantly dinging with people checking me out to verify I am who I say I am on the post. Um, and I would hasten to add, feel free to call me, anyone. You know, you'll see the link, you'll see my details. I'm happy to talk to anyone. And I will answer the phone. I'll try and make time for everyone. Um, yet the silence is deafening. And I know the eyes that need to see it will have seen it. Why is the silence deafening? Why doesn't someone want to publicly speak to me and put my fears to rest? I certainly would. If I was in charge and I saw a viral post from an undertaker voicing concerns, I'd be all over that undertaker saying, look, let me reassure you, the silence is deafening. And the mainstream and that, media should be all over you. The, the tabloid oh, newspapers exactly. should be crawling all over, you know, um, for, Milton Keynes, of course. Of course. And, and for anyone with an ounce of common sense, isn't that telling and isn't that really worrying? It's beyond um, worrying. I, 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 I really, I, I can't say that. Strongly enough, it's be it's beyond it. I know that there are um, some very good journalists listening to this. Um, Jackie got a mention earlier on in the program. Uh, I, I know Sally might be listening to the program. 
um, uh, uh, Nicola might be listening, the conservative woman. There are some, you know, women mostly, it must be said, out there really doing their best to get this stuff mainstream. And they've had their articles published in all of the papers for uh, for years. And, uh, you know, if if they have any conscience, any of these editors, any of these journalists, I don't mean Jackie and, and the ladies, but any of the commissioning editors, if they have any conscience, they've got to publish this stuff. They've got to. They've got to I, give you a fair go. Uh, I would like to see a national database of adverse effects that the public can understand. I'd like to see informed consent and I'd like to see people informed exactly what waivers, if any, have been signed so that the public can make an informed choice and know the risk they're taking. And then if need be, and they still feel the same, I totally respect their decision to take that choice. But there's talk now of children being vaccinated. Now, I'll be honest with you, if a 45 or a 50-year-old takes a vaccine and falls over and dies, um, nobody will turn an eyelid. If children are vaccinated and they're adversely affected or they die, it will hit the fan. And I want to prevent that happening by forcing open dialogue. And I'd urge anyone who feels the way that I do not to, um, you know, come out wearing a tinfoil hat, but just speak openly about your fears and, and your concerns and get some weight behind this because somebody needs to do something. We haven't had the experience that you've had. You've had an experience many, many, many times that nobody ever wants to you know, to, to, to experience. You, you, you've been with people uh, at their worst. I mentioned this earlier on. So you've, you've, you've witnessed parents coming to terms with the loss of a child, you know, and you, you, you've seen that, the rawness of it. And it shines out of you that that's on your mind, that, that sort of pain that can be avoided. That's really where it's coming from, isn't it? Your experiences as, as a funeral director. I don't even know you. You sound like a good man. If I came to you and I said, I've lost my child, there's nothing you wouldn't do for me. Yeah. I have no doubt, John. Mate, we're... Uh, are um, you a I'm not, no, I'm not. I'd love to be, but no, we don't have children, no. And I think when it truly strikes, if you've got your own children, and I, I know there'll be a large number of men and women out there that are fathers and grandparents, and you know that if someone came to you and they lost a child, there's nothing you wouldn't do to help them. And, and that's me. John, thanks for, for writing the open letter, first and foremost. And thanks, no, for, thanks for coming to the programme through, um, through Mark. I, I just admire you. I hope there are no con- there shouldn't be consequences. Your business is... Well, w- um, if, um, maybe I will be persecuted for the crime of honesty. Um, it is what it is. You know, I'm not going to retract or deny what I've said. I've voiced open serious concerns along with a number of other far more senior respected professionals than me and I have to remind us all that silence is deafening isn't it deafening folks if you want to find John online it's Milton Keynes Family Funeral Services you can check John yeah. out you'll, you'll see um, how highly sought of he is you know dozens if not hundreds of um, Google reviews and very heartfelt messages from people that John and his family have taken care of I just think you're great, John. And uh, please stay in touch, mate, will you? Stay in touch with me. We're connected now. I would say, you know what, you can call me any time you want because I'm in the business of looking after people and I will always make time for you if you call me, I promise. I will do, John. Look after yourself, mate. Godspeed to you and thanks for doing what you do. And bye for now. That was uh, John O'Lunig. John, um, whose granddad came to London, great-granddad, many, many, many years ago as a 12-year-old, from Munster, the name O'Lunig is a great Munster name. 
John's a funeral director and as I said um, a very well thought of one in the business itself and uh, he wrote an open letter expressing his disquiet I suppose how disturbed he was at the inflation of the death numbers at the death the increase in deaths after the vaccine rollout particularly this year at being told by an NHS consultant not to have the jab the horrors of um, parents not being able to see their children because Funeral directors were told, basically, get the deceased into the coffins and seal the coffins. The horrors of the way people were treated. And then news that local health authorities are tendering for temporary massive mortuaries up and down the country from, from, from late this year till 2025. He's convinced that the death numbers last year were never any greater than they were years before. He told us that he's heard the same from other funeral directors. I, you make of what John said, you make yourself of what John said. You you think about it. I'm not going to tell you what to think about it. What I think is, there's absolutely no reason for this man to, to make this up. None. None. There's nothing in it for him. Nothing at all. Uh, thanks to Mark Bajerski for, um, for, for organising the conversation today. Mark, coincidentally, is on the programme tomorrow. I can't wait for that. I love having Mark on. And it's been quite a while. Thanks um, to uh, to John O'Leary again. And thanks as well to uh, Clive Mingus in the forest there. Clive is fascinating. And after his court case is said and done, we'll make uh, a bit of time for Clive to come back and get into the areas of um, critical thinking more generally because he's a lovely bloke. And very well spoken, obviously very well versed on critical thinking and other issues. So we'll get him back on as well. Thanks uh, to you for listening. Don't miss tomorrow. Uh, Mark Bajerski, as I said, will be with me for uh, a good extended conversation tomorrow. That's it for Monday's programme. From me, the BBG, you take care of yourself and one another. And this is for, um, well, for a couple of people who've been in touch during the programme uh, to say that, um, well, that they, they like the programme. See you tomorrow. When you're down. 